All right, everybody, welcome to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. Today, we have the professor joining us, uh, Michael Hudson. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure and a privilege to spend time with you today. Oh, my gosh. So, folks out there, uh, you might be aware, I attended heroic public speaking done by Michael and Amy Port out in Lambertville, New Jersey. I just wanted to invest in myself and figure out how to be a better speaker, a better communicator, And when I got out there, it was the most amazing group, a very diverse group across the spectrum of people. And I absolutely had a blast. But there was a couple people in that group that just stood out. You you know, you ever get to a group and you're like, okay, that I need to get to know that person. And Michael, that was you. I'll never forget. We sat there. It was you, me, and I think Janet and Kathy. We were sitting there. Mm -hmm. And we went out and we had dinner and I was like sitting around this table with the most, this was like the deepest bench I'd ever sat at. I'm like, oh my goodness, I get to sit here and listen to this conversation and I'm just being made a better person, just uh, listening to the conversation. And then you guys all invited me to participate. It was awesome. And uh, just a, a little background on Michael amazing journey in business. I'm going to have you share a little bit more about this. Became a professor, a teacher. You're also a barbecue master and the professor is your brand. (laughs) He sends me a picture of his barbecued uh, ribs and tomahawk steaks, guys, that just like, sorry, man, but I'm cut. Yeah, You know, I can't cut it (laughs) because you're actually teaching me how to do it myself. But when I see it, I'm like, okay, well, I want that on my plate. And then also right now you you've made a big pivot and you're part of Aspire Leadership, which has this beautiful mission to just change how we lead and just change the culture of the companies that we work in that is so in alignment with what we're doing here at Eternal Leadership and Beyond Influence. And, and in my world, I don't think there's any competition in this world because God is moving right now big time and we need literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people to step into the breach and step into the works that have been prepared because God's moving right now big time. So we're going to have a great discussion today, folks, on how do we earn the right to lead? Think about that. What does it look like to be the kind of boss that people respect, that people love working for, that people know that you're tough, but you're fair and you're loving? How do you combine all these things? And what do we do, I think, what do we need to do to look inside to make some of those changes that allow our external influence and impact to just thrive and multiply? Because it can, right? And it's an important, very important topic right now. You guys are all listening out there, you know, current events, you know, the workforce drain, people are quitting. I just read 83%, this is from Indeed. 83% of the workforce right now is either actively looking for a job or open to moving. 83% folks, if you're a manager or a supervisor, you're trying to hire somebody right now. What we're going to talk about today is going to be the key to building a culture that people want to be a part of and they want to stay in, right? So with that, Michael, I'd love for you to share a little bit about just your journey, your background, just give some context to And I'm just excited that our audience gets to learn from you today, my friend. Thank you so much, John. It, uh, as you know, it, I care deeply about helping people and I was wired that way from birth, I think, honestly, 
I mean, I was the kid on the playground and one kid was getting picked on, would try to step in, you know, because I wanted to help that kid. You know, I've always had this concern about people's potential, right? So that was created because of the life I had the privilege of living, you know, and I say the privilege in the sense that, you know, I had some difficult things happen to me. We won't go into those, but some childhood trauma issues that really had an impact that lasted a long time and took me a long time to work through. But, you know, what blessed me at the moment, at that moment, when I was trying to figure out, you know, how did I fit in after feeling like I had no value was finding 4-H. Now that may seem like a weird place to go. And many of your listeners may not even know what 4-H is, you know, but it's not just about cows and cooking. It's a program that's about developing kids into leaders. And it is the first exposure I had, John, to the idea of culture in something outside of the family. In the sense, this was a situation where the kids lead the programs, you know, they're guided by leaders who are very much servants. Yeah. Michael, when you said that there's a culture outside the family, what was that awareness for you? Well, you know, for me, John, 4-H gave me this opportunity to finally show up as me. Mm. And, and I think that's a big issue leaders wrestle with. You know, I've worked with over 3000 companies, lots of leaders, and people don't show up as themselves sometimes. And there's lots of reasons why we don't do that. And I wasn't showing up as myself because bad stuff had happened to me that I hadn't dealt with. I hadn't told anyone because when someone does something to you and threatens to kill you, if you tell anybody, you don't go talk about it when you're 10 years old. And I suddenly walked into this thing and I'll give you the exact story, John. I'm sitting around a campfire at 4-H camp. And I've never been to the camp before. Many of my friends have. I've held off on going for various personal reasons. I just didn't feel comfortable. I didn't feel like I belonged there. And I'm sitting around a campfire. And the person running the campfire calls someone forward who is the spirit of the previous year's camp and hands him this little box of ashes taken from the previous year's fire, a box that had been used from the start of the camp 35 years prior to that. And this person walks out and sprinkles these ashes around this fire and the fire magically lights. And as this is all happening, he's telling this story. And John, it was the first time in my life when I realized I'm part of something bigger than me. I am expected to protect, nurture, and grow their traditions of it. And that just was a light bulb moment for me. It's like, okay, we're here for a bigger purpose. You know, we're here to do something beyond us. And it's not just that we do it because we want to, we have an obligation. And I think that kind of changed my entire world. That, that may be the day that I kind of became a professor in my head, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Well, I agree. You know what? The things that have gotten me excited to be a part of, and this, is, this might be just a great foundational idea for everybody listening is you know where I got excited when I was in the military as a fighter pilot? I was excited about being a fighter pilot, but I was equally or more excited about being part of a squadron in an air wing, the mission, the yeah. naval aviation, this movement that you know had really gotten momentum after that movie Top Gun came out. And I think about some of the nonprofits, churches, companies I've been a part of. Yeah, I felt like I wasn't joining something Mm -hmm. Right, I wasn't getting hired. I was actually choosing to be part of something. Yeah. Right. And that is a perspective to think, you know, hey, what do our employees, what do our team think they're a part of? Yeah. 
And if we can't answer that question and people don't know our story, like I could just imagine you sitting there in awe as the guy's walking around because you're a master storyteller and talking about the history and the ashes. And then all of a sudden, you know, the firelights and you're just like, people love story because it makes our brain light up. So what is that story that we're inviting other people to be a part of? Yeah. And John, I don't know if you've read Andy Stanley's latest book, Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. But one of the I'm lines going to that's a good that's not actually on my list. Well, and one of the one of the things he talks about in there is the story we tell ourselves, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, my take on this gets really simplified, right? 4-H was a blessing. It, it, it opened a whole new doors to me. It taught me how to lead at a young age. You know, I went through the program. I went to camp there for four or five years. I became a counselor there for five or six years. Then 10 years later, I had the privilege of running the program for 10 years. And it's always been this parallel in my mind as I've watched the organizations I've had the privilege of working with that get it and contrasted them with the ones that don't. A lot of times it's around what's that story of how people are leveraging the lessons that they have earned. And I want to call that out bluntly. Okay, they've earned them. They learned them, but they earned them because they went through experiences. And I kept finding the leaders that stood out having this common theme. They were telling the stories and contextualizing them around things they had earned from their journey, lessons they had earned, and then sharing them and revealing them with others to help them do the same thing. And, you know, you've been in organizations like that, just like I have, John, and they're different, right? You walk in the front door, you know, you're in a different place. People have a different level of engagement, a different level of ownership. They feel valued you know, they feel responsible and, and not responsible in the sense that I told you to do this, but responsible in the sense that they saw a place for them in this story. And that kind of had got, has guided my, you know, my life after that world, you know, I went through academia and all that when I was teaching in academia, you know, built two programs, one at the university of Illinois, one at Cornell, both of which had national recognition, turned out a lot of great students loved every minute of it. But the difference in our programs that made them work was involvement. You know, we didn't go sit in a room and figure it out. We went and talked to the students. <laughs> you know, what do you need? How does this work? And that's kind of the guidepost to me that drives all of this. You know, what lessons did you earn from your journey? How do you take those lessons and reveal them to others in ways that help them discover and move beyond anything that's in their way? Does that resonate, John? hundred percent because, you know, I'm thinking of there's almost these kind of these two modes of leadership. When we're putting ourselves first and we're not building trust, right? Leadership, especially if it's positional, becomes one of compliance because I'm an authority. Mm-hmm. But when I am leading from the right place for the right reasons with the right motives and I have that trust and people know that I have their back, I'm leading from a place of commitment. People are yeah. committed because you know what? They feel like they get to do something versus they have to do something. Yeah. And in that, you've shared with me a lot of your stories and our backgrounds are so similar from some of the ways that we were raised and a lot of our experiences, what's led to a very low view of myself, mm-hmm. right? A, a low self-image, which meant that I, yeah. I was always trying to prove something mm-hmm. to somebody because that's how you got the accolades, Right. I was so concerned. I had so many voices that I was letting into my life because I I wanted to please everybody. Yeah. 
right? Because you know what? If somebody gave me an attaboy, man, that felt good for a little bit. I wanted to go get another one. And what that <laughs> did was that shaped me. Well, in doing that, all of a sudden, I was constantly catering to what everybody else wanted out of me, how they thought I should show up, what they thought I should do. And I was also thinking about, hey, what would get me, you know, get me that attaboy? Can I tell you? It's exhausting. But <laughs> <Amen>. especially <laughs> when you move into a leadership role, you know what? Here you say about it, right? When you make it about yourself, right? All mm-hmm. of a sudden, you're not going to earn that right to lead. You're not going to have people right. voluntarily want to follow you. So for you, Michael, I would love for you to share how you a kind of recognize that and what was that some things that you found in your journey to transition mm-hmm. to a different kind of person and leader. Fantastic question, John, and one that I think we all should ponder, right? I mean, what were the moments? What were the pivots? What were those times when you saw something different? And I relate so much to what you're saying, John. I chased accolades, awards, and acknowledgement for way too much of my life. And what gave me these little light bulb moments, though, was realizing, okay, but when I'm here, I'm different. Or when I'm there, I'm different. My current business partner and Years ago, I was in a mastermind group and he was a client at that time. And I was describing how much I loved working with their company. And one of the people said, well, why is it that they're different than all your other clients? And what I specifically said at that moment was because the people in that company would crawl on broken glass for a mile to get this man a glass of water. And there's magic in that. And I don't mean that in a subservient way. You, you know how I mean it. And I hope your listeners hear what I'm saying here. It's not that he would demand they go do that. It was that he had earned the right to lead them in a way because he had engaged them, empowered them, equipped them. All the words that we and hear that loved people and talk about. And people that you love and respect, you just want to serve out of gratitude. Yeah. I mean, you, you have this, you know, we refer to it in some of our training as the influence bank, right? We all have a bank of influence. And we are, we are constantly either making deposits or withdrawals on that bank of influence. Well, his bank of influence had such huge balances with everybody in the organization because of the way he walked, you know, and all the things we've all heard, right? Walk your talk, you know, management by wandering around, you know, the Tom Peters, Bob Waterman stuff, you know, take care of your company, your customers take care of your people and the bottom line takes care of itself. By the way, Tom Peters' new book is fantastic. If you haven't read it, I forget the title right now. It's Radical Something. Radical humanism, maybe? Candor? No, I'll get it to you. So if it's, if it's valuable, <laughs> I don't see it on the shelf like I thought I was going to when I turned it around there, John. But the point is we put people first. And I have seen so much of not putting people first and the disasters it creates, you know, and the things that people aren't doing that are simple. You know, you referred to the motive and, you know, I'm a huge fan of Patrick Lencioni's book, The Motive. It simplifies the motive down very easily, and it frames very much what you need to do if you have the right motive. And he argues there's only one motive. I would argue the same thing. If you're not serving, you're not leading, because that's why you're there. You know, and there were moments in my life. Michael, I think servant leadership is often misunderstood and poorly implemented. Amen. Say more. Here's what happens is, right? A lot of us have been taught kind of a, either a command control or we're maybe naturally good in a leadership role of making decisions. Mm-hmm. 
And what happens is I'm like, okay, I want to be more of a servant leadership. And the way I've seen it drawn up is like you do a traditional org chart with a triangle CEO at the top, right? Mm-hmm. Well, hey, let's flip it upside down. The CEO's at the bottom and their job is to serve everybody to be successful in what they're doing. Yeah. Often what happens in that model is what I do because I haven't really understood what people need to succeed in their role. Mm-hmm. I let them just go do their thing. I try to do my best to make sure they have what they need, but all of a sudden the results start to not be as good when I'm in maybe my natural command control. I'm not saying it's that's a wrong way to do it, but I'm just saying there's a difference. And all of a sudden, and I was actually teaching a group of oh, about 20 senior leaders from the Space Force this week. And I said, have you guys ever experienced that where people are going like from command control and they shift back to let, being a little looser and then they got to flip back to get the results back. And I call that the schizophrenic leadership model. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My friend Fort Taylor <laughs> describes that so clearly. I'm like, dude, as soon as you said that, I'm like, dude, like I get that. Yeah. And here's the thing, I think in servant leadership, it's all about how do we help our people to succeed? Yeah. Yeah. What do we need to do to give them the knowledge that they need, the experience that they need, the tools that they need? Because until we actually look at what they actually need, you know, what's, are we in agreement about what success is? Yes. Have we set goals? It was interesting as uh, we were doing some research, especially through COVID and this virtual environment, the biggest contributor to uh, employee underperformance by 60% is lack of feedback. Mm-hmm. Think about it. We don't have the relationship. Yeah. We go in and say, hey, John, you're doing this well, but you know what? Here's an area you need to get better on. Or guess what? You need to get better at this technically, or you need to get better at dealing with these kind of problems. And I want to help you yeah. do that so that I can actually delegate things to you and set you up for success and good outcomes. But also know that if we don't have a great outcome, we're going to talk about it and learn from it and figure out how to do better versus me feeling less than. Or feeling like maybe I disappointed somebody. Because I've been in that. I hate being in that. And I felt like that a lot in my life with different leaders. And I got to tell you, that just, it just brings back this flood of all the stuff from when I was growing up. And it it makes it hard for me in those situations often to show up as my best self. Absolutely. And, And the thing that's in that, John, right, is it's not as hard as people think it is. And you know, one of the things we got to do is contextualize everything to where we are today, right? Today, where are we, right? We're however many months into this whole pandemic process and everything, which has dramatically changed the shape of work forever. Because people have realized in certain places, certain fields, people can be far more productive when they are working from their kitchen table or wherever they need to work. And we have people who have now been given freedom and flexibility they didn't have before and still been able to perform who therefore go, why would I go back to the way it was? Well, what an opportunity that gives us, you know, to, to move beyond thinking we're in charge and directing people and telling them what they need to do. And we recognize we get more done when we do it together, you know, and I think people make this complicated. You know, you make the point about servant leadership and, you know, some people call it people centric. Some people call it care based leadership. I don't care what you call it. It's realizing your job as a leader is not about leading today as much as it is about creating the capacity in others to lead tomorrow. You know, if we enter leadership and say, my job is to equip this person to lead 
better than I ever could. We're going to do things differently, aren't we? Yeah, and let's dig into that too, because I think there's a difference between leading and managing. Yes. Right? We can manage a person. We can manage a process to get to an outcome. And I had a mentor of mine once say to me, Michael, whenever you're telling somebody what to do and how to do it, or whenever you are making a decision, you are in a management mode. Mm-hmm. Whenever you are equipping and empowering somebody to do it on their own or to make that decision, you are in a leadership role. And he mm-hmm. said, John, your goal is, and it's an aspirational goal, but is to be in that leadership role 100% of the time. So whenever you do have to make a decision or tell somebody what to do, that is then feedback, a feedback loop that you should have to say, okay, I have some leadership to do work to do in that situation or with this person. And that, you know, I got to tell you, that has served me really well to create some really powerful and high performing teams over time, because what that forces me to do is not make it about me. Yeah. Sometimes it feels good to be the guy who is the answer man, who the guy, you know, the teams come to and say, John, what do we do here? Hey, what do we do there? Hey, can I get your approval yeah. on this? Yeah. Well, some of that feeds the ego, right? But when, if I am it's back to chasing accolades and accomplishments and recognitions, right? <laughs> that's right. And if I'm in that mode, yes, I can, I know for a fact in that mode, I can get short-term results because mm-hmm. I know me, right? And I'm kind of a, action taker and I'm, you know, and I can be, and I set a goal and I, you know, and I do what it takes to get there. That but what you, what I, you don't do, John, what you're not doing there is why you're not earning the right to lead. You're earning the right to have to stay in the role you're in. So you can be the question answerer guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm respecting you because you solve my problems and you ease my burden in the sense that I don't even have to take responsibility for the decisions because I just go to give them to you. So now what happens the day that John doesn't show up? See, that's what tugs at me. It's what happens that day that person who people have become so reliant upon disappears. And if that person had been leading effectively, it doesn't matter. It's exhausting because guess what? When you stay in that mode, you become basically the shell answer man. Yes. And guess what happens? When I would try to disappear on a vacation, my wife would be frustrated every year. We took a vacation out to Cape Cod. And honestly, from Monday through about Wednesday, I was on the phone all the time because mm-hmm. people would call me, well, hey, John, what about this? Or can we make a pricing exception? All these questions. And usually by about Wednesday, I think they felt guilty enough that usually by Thursday and Friday, I actually had some really good quality family time. And I was back at work on Monday again, and I didn't, I wasn't refreshed. And you know what? Not only do we not earn the, the right to lead, but we also give up the ability to just enjoy our life and our family and our you know, things outside of work. So there's some huge benefits of putting in the work to actually make this shift. Well, and, and you know, John, one of the whole premise of our, you know, of Aspire Leadership is that we're looking at how do you make that simple? And I think it simplifies down to a very basic mindset of three things. You have to become more curious, more humble, and have more empathy. You know, and, and what that means is when that person comes to you and says, what should I do here? Or, you know, what do you want me to do? Are we going to lower the price? Can we do this? Can we do this? You know, instead of you answering, 
you silence the advice monster, as Michael Bunke Stanier labels the person, and you say, what do you think we should do? Or you say, what are our options? Or you say, you make the decision that you believe is correct, I'll support you. How much different does that feel? Oh, it's amazing. Curiosity, humility, and empathy. Yes. So here's what I'm hearing in that, right? That, that's, it's like this shift from feeling like you're the person that maybe needs to explain or answer mm-hmm. to being the person that explores and asks questions instead. Yes. From being the person that makes the decision to being the person that empowers the people around you to make those decisions. Mm-hmm. And from being the person that takes a position to the person that is in that exploration and, and empowerment, right? You're, you're actually looking at the vision and the purpose of the organization and how do the people that are part of your team help you move toward that the way that they would, mm-hmm. right? And the empathy of really understanding the value and the, the skills and the talents of your people versus maybe constantly questioning their abilities. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's a matter of, and, you know, it, there's an underlying thing has got to happen first, right, John? You have to realize it's always about learning where the better way is. Therefore, making mistakes is a good thing. Therefore, not getting as far as you might have thought you would go with this is a good thing because of what it taught you. And as long as the communication, the feedback is there, we're going to get there ultimately, right? And we'll get there better and faster when we do that. And too many times, that's not how leaders even think their role is. You know, if we give people permission to take action, celebrate the outcome and the process, learn from it, debrief it, and then make it better the next time, are we going to build a stronger company longer term than if we're the lid that has to make every decision? I think the obvious answer is yes. So, you know, how do we do that? You know, we engage them. We ask them what they think. We teach them to think differently. You know, when you have curiosity, you know what you get in a business, John? You get growth. You get growth of individuals, you get growth of you, and you get growth of the company because you're not stuck in the past and you're not saying this is how we do it here. You're asking, how should we do it here? How might we do it here? Based on the collective lessons we have all earned, how does that inform us to do it better? You know, so, when you're you know, being humble enough to fail, you open doors. Go ahead. Yeah. So in that, I'm, I'm actually thinking about, you know, that shift for me. Um, I probably 10 years ago would have described myself as curious and humble and empathetic. Mm-hmm. In reality, though, but, you know, that, because that's what I wanted. And that's kind of how I viewed myself. In reality, I didn't show up that way very often, the way that other people really experienced me. For people out there just listening, Michael, how would I know that maybe I, I actually really like, you know what, that I need to develop more curiosity and humility. Does that make sense? Like, how would yeah. I know that, you know what, maybe this is an area I really need to work in? Well, you know, some symptoms that, you know, that that could be going on for you, right, is you are the person who's always in the middle. People are sitting around figuratively or literally in many cases, waiting upon you to make a decision because they don't think they have the permission to make it themselves or they haven't been given that permission. You know, you're in the mode where most of the time questions are coming to you and you're giving answers instead of asking questions. I mean, a simple way to track this, John, 
<laughs> just keep tick marks next to wherever you happen to work. How many questions did I ask today? I mean, that changes everything because you realize, wow, I asked like six questions today. That wasn't very good. I don't know what the number is. There's no magic number. But when someone came to you, did you ask a question or did you answer the question? So I just had a thought here. I, you know, I think this brings up an element of servant leadership to people to understand. They think answering the question is serving somebody. And I, had, I was working with a woman. She's got 65 people on her team. And this was really interesting. And as I observed how she worked with her team, she answered every question and she was working 10 hours a day and she just felt like she could never get anything done. Mm -hmm. And we talked about this, right? This place of curiosity. And I said, how about this for the next week? What if you did not answer any questions, but instead you got curious and you asked questions mm -hmm. for people to figure it out themselves and then them to come up with the action plan so that they have ownership and they're empowered to go do it. Mm -hmm. And she said it was one of the hardest things that she ever did. She constantly caught herself answering questions. It was her go-to and it was her habit. And by the end of the week, she said it was absolutely transformational. I will tell you now, three months later, it is a completely different team. And she is viewed yeah. very differently and better as their leader. Well, you know, John, there's some simple phrases anyone can use every day a little more that will create that. John comes in, he's bringing me something. And, and you know, I'm at that point, right? We've all been there. I got the answer. I got the answer. And you're just waiting for them to stop talking so you can say, go do this. What if instead you said, you just let them talk until they stopped. You said, tell me more. Or say more about that. Because yeah, think what about do you, it. Or what do you think we should do? Well, yeah. And here's the, the reason I say use the say more thing first, or you know, tell me more is what's the reality? Most of us take three or four times of running around the barn before we get to the real story we need to be telling. True. Because we're still trying to figure it out ourselves. We're reading your nonverbals as he or she getting it. And we're changing our story and tweak. And we're trying to uncover something, right? Because we don't, the problem with answering the questions is a lot of times we're answering the wrong question. Because they asked the question they thought was the question because we didn't go deep enough into identifying what the real problem was. A big part of curiosity. Point, how many times have you, everybody out there listening, gone and asked a question and somebody answered a completely different question? Yeah. Right. It happens all the time. <laughs> and problem solvers are great at that. Right. They live. Oh, I solved that problem for them. And they're walking away going, you didn't even hear, hear what I was saying. This has nothing to do with what I asked you. <laughs> and you missed it because you saw your role as my job is to give them the answer they need so they can get back to doing the stuff. I mean, this takes hard work, right? Because it takes discipline to stop. It takes discipline to pause. It takes building the skill of listening. It takes the humility to say, look, I don't have all the answers. In fact, I know I have very few of the answers. You know, Michael, that reminds me, I was in a mastermind group of all CEOs, eight of us, right? Bunch of strong personalities, mm -hmm. all a bunch of problem solvers. And we kept doing this to each other. So one of the guys threw out there said, listen, here's a new rule. When somebody throws something out there or has a, a point of view or is asking for some help, we have to, before you can give an advice or an insight or your thoughts on something, you have to ask two clarifying questions yeah. to make sure that we're serving each other well. And it totally changed the conversation. Yeah. So just think about that, everybody out there. Just before you answer a question, just simply ask a couple clarifying questions back to yeah. make sure you're having a quality communication. And you know, one of those questions is always easy. It is the question of, 
it sounds to me like you think we should do this, or it sounds to me like this is the problem. Do I understand that? Oh yeah. Reframing and repeating back what people say is, is huge. They're like, no, nah, that's not quite what I meant, Michael. Well, yeah. Uh, let, let me try that again. Oh, I bet that'll happen a lot. And the driving personality of many leaders is to do what in that situation? They give the answer or they say, okay, I got it. We need to do this. Boom, we're done. And that doesn't work. I'm not sure how well it ever worked, John. It worked. You know, there's an interesting, the McKinsey podcast, the October 28th episode is worth a listen by anyone who wishes to be a better leader because it talks about the world we live in. And one of the things it shares in there is the reality of how did we get to this work week that we have and the structure that we have and the belief of how leadership works that we have. And it all came out of, a you know, the industrial revolution, you know, and mass production kinds of concepts, which is where that worked, right? Because it's, yes, you put this bolt into that hole. That's how this works. There's no discussion about where the bolt goes. It goes here. We don't live in that world anymore. And that's why this curiosity issue becomes so strong. You know, that's why the humility drives it, because if you're not humble enough to realize, I don't know. And if you don't have the empathy to listen until they get through their telling of the story, the way they need to tell it, to ask you the question they really want to ask you, we're just undermining their ability to grow. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm thinking about the interplay between curiosity and humility too, because, you know, you and I both been through some crazy experiences younger in life that we know affected how we showed up. Yeah. What I've learned is every single one of us has that stuff. And, you know, most of it is stuff you don't share with people. There's mm -hmm. things that are associated with fear or guilt or shame or failure, whatever it happens to be a negative interaction when you're younger. And all of a sudden I'm in a situation and I react in a way because it's all this stuff is in our brain, right? We yeah. can go into the neuroscience of all this. But all of a sudden, I might react in a way that I don't even know why I'm reacting, but it has become a habit. And yeah. some of that is also just the curiosity versus a judgment. Oh, Michael's just this way. Mm -hmm. The curiosity of, hmm, I wonder why Michael reacts that way in that situation. Yeah. Because when we see somebody for, you know, we under, like, I always come from this place assuming, because I've worked with people all over the world. Mm -hmm. This is my assumption, even if it's not showing up in the present with my conversation, that they're good people. They want to be liked, they want to have healthy relationships, and they want to do meaningful work. Mm -hmm. And if I can channel that from a place of curiosity, that actually has helped me ask questions that help us, that can really dramatically transform a relationship and make it positive. It doesn't mm -hmm. make it amazing all the time, but you know what? It makes it, especially at work, right? You have some of those people, but it makes it a place where, you know what? We can get along and we can work. But also that place of humility, I'd like to talk to you about that because, yeah. you know, one of the things, you know, in that vein of understanding other people, what I realize sometimes my reactions to people, it really could be my own lens, my filters, and I'm not even understanding it. So in that place of humility, and I found myself doing this more and more as I've gotten older, but I might go to you and say, hey, Michael, listen, this could totally me, be me. This could be my lens. But when you did this thing, here's how it landed on me, or here's how it impacted me, or here's how I think your behavior is affecting the team. But once again, this could just be me and my lens, but would you mind if we talked about that? Yeah. But I think if you approach some of these, what a lot of us feel are really these difficult conversations from a place of humility, it is a much more constructive conversation. 
Yeah, and I think, John, you know, that humility and the empathy together have a bigger impact too, right? Because, you know, you're trying to understand where they're coming from. So what are you going to do? You're going to ask more questions. You know, you're going to bring the three elements in. And, you know, it's too easy to ignore those things. And, you know, uh, you know, I'm going to go back to Lencioni's book for a minute. You know, he talks about the five things you have to do. And, you know, he doesn't say, use these words, but it's basically hard conversations. You know, you've got to take, have the guts to have that hard conversation. But what makes that conversation feel hard to most of us is that we think we're supposed to have an answer. We think we have to control it and direct it, or we're fearful of something that's going to come up that we don't know how to deal with. You know, and that's goes back to this lessons earned, right? And earning the right to lead, you know, it's okay. What lessons did I earn? You know, what story can I tell that will open the door to let someone say something else that they need to say? You know, if we're going to be naive enough to think that we don't lead people who have had bad experiences in their life, we're going to be a lousy leader. Because some of those people you lead are showing up every day, still trying to overcome that day they had that one statement made that stuck with them and made them feel like they had less value than everybody else on the planet. And we don't get to judge whether they should or shouldn't feel that way. We need to understand they do feel that way. And if we approach them from a space of humility and empathy, and being curious to learn more about them and actually getting to know them as human beings and understand what drives them, what makes them tick. We just change the game completely. And it's hard work, right? I mean, it's definitely work one has to be very intentional about. And it's developed and learned skills. But my bet is everyone listening today has earned lessons in their life from difficult moments that they can easily leverage to help them help other people they're leading move through the difficult challenges they're facing. Yeah. And, you know, Michael, your passion in this is so evident. And in that, you left what you were doing to start with a friend of yours, Aspire Leadership, to bring this out into the world. And how would you describe that passion that's driving what you're doing right now? John, you know, I've had the privilege for almost 40 years, which is really hard to say, by the way, <laughs> of working with leaders in all kinds of places, right, in all kinds of organizations. And my frustration, the thing that, you know, I would fly home from a client engagement being frustrated about was always the same thing. Why is this person or that person so in the way in that organization? Or why is this person or that person not being able to have the impact that they should be having on this organization because of things in the organization that are in the way? Well, you know, when I was approached by my partner, Jeff Banning, you know, Jeff had built a company, an interesting backstory, by the way, John, I don't know if I ever shared this with you, but you know, he was in college. He was the part-time financial person for the company that had about 10 employees his father was running. And then one day gets the call that, you know, dad's going to sell a company and, they can buy it or he's going to sell it because he's going to go do some other things. So suddenly he left college and be began running a company, you know, well, across his 30 year journey, what happened? You know, he was able to take this company from this little 10 person company to a significant company that got bought and acquired as a top 20 company in their industry. And what guided it, what guided it was he didn't know what he was doing. So he asked a lot of questions at the start, right? What guided it is why he, he's a very humble person and he made it not about him. What made that happen was that, you know, he had the empathy to understand people. When I was on those planes, listening to people in those frustrations, that's what was bothering me. People weren't asking, why is that person that way? You know, let, let's go to a very specific way to describe this, John, that will resonate, I think. 
There's a thing called trauma-informed leadership. Our friend Chris Fries is a guy who works on that. And the idea is that we recognize people have had trauma in their life and that trauma may be affecting the way they're showing up. That's part of the empathy box, right? Paying attention to, you know, what's in their way and giving them permission to sort that out and realizing they may be reacting for reasons that are not the reasons we're ascribing to that. So the way we behave and engage with them every day, we call curiosity, humility, and empathy, the empathy, the three daily disciplines. Every leader needs to do them every day in every interaction. If we can do that, we don't have those people I used to worry about on the plane because we've freed them to take the lessons they've earned from their journey and use them and bring them into the organization. We've created a sense of belonging that makes them know they're part of something bigger than themselves much like I felt when I saw that firelight and heard those stories that night at that campfire. And we're opening a door for them to truly grow into the person they're capable of becoming, their best self. When we do that, we become irrelevant, which I think is the best thing a leader ever does. Because now they're moving forward, they're growing, they're leading, they're becoming more. And the, you know, sort of the tide lifts all boats. The company's becoming better. The organization's becoming better. There's more impact. Love that. Well, how do people connect to you, find Aspire Leadership, follow up with Michael Hudson, the professor? <laughs> By the way, you know, John, I was uh, being born a professor. That's just a natural title makes sense in the organization. <laughs> yeah, but I love um, it. it. It's so apropos. <laughs> if you're in the military, it, it would say it, Michael Hudson, professor on pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Why does that fit for me? Because I'm a curious person. I learned to be humble. I wasn't for a period of my life, and I learned how painful that can be. And I'd like to think I have a good degree of empathy. So uh, you can find us at aspireleadership.com. And certainly, if you want to reach me directly, it's just michael.hudson at aspireleadership.com. And you can probably put that in the show notes, John. And, um, you know, would love to have a conversation with you about it. You know, the way we look at this is very simple. Be curious enough to ask, empathetic enough to listen, and humble enough to learn. If you'll just commit to doing those three things, you'll change your leadership forever. And that's what I want to see, because that's going to be your ability to discover who you are meant to be as a leader, which will unlock the reason you're here on the planet. That's awesome. Michael, just as we wrap up, any final thoughts, my friend? I just want to challenge you to have the, your listeners, John, to have the courage to realize, even if you're one of the best, you can do better. You know, we're a big believer that continuous improvement drives anything. It starts with self-awareness that helps you do better self-development. And when you do better self-development, you then basically self-realize when you start to deliver what you've become to other people to equip them. Because our fundamental premise is if you create leaders who can take the organization to a place you couldn't take it, you have done your job. If on the other hand, there's a lid because you're always in the way please rethink how you're doing things. Awesome. Michael, thank you for what you're doing. I would really encourage you guys. Michael, it's just been a huge positive influence in my life, my leadership, things that I have done. You've just been not only just a great friend, but a great mentor and a great coach. And I deeply appreciate who you are as a person, buddy. So thank you, John. Thank I can't you. wait till the next time we get to meet in person when I, when I get back to the East coast and, uh, I, and, I uh, built a barbecue, barbecue pavilion barbecue. just for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm coming. 
All right, Michael, great talking with you, my friend. Keep knocking them alive and uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, Todd.